Hey, Lulu here. Whether we are romping through science, music, politics, technology, or feelings, we seek to leave you seeing the world anew. Radiolab adventures right on the edge of what we think we know, wherever you get podcasts. I'm Melissa Harris-Perry, and you're with The Takeaway. Few Americans have known war. No protracted armed conflict has occurred on U.S. soil since the Civil War. So for most of us, it's nearly impossible to fathom what it was like nearly one year ago when, in the early morning hours of February 24th, an unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine began. It's hard to comprehend being shaken from sleep by missile attacks, explosions, sirens, fire. To understand the terror of huddling together with neighbors and strangers in an underground subway station through a long, dark night of shelling. To know what it means to hold our children close and to try to comfort them with words we ourselves scarcely believe, or what it meant to have powerful, deadly weapons pressed urgently into our hands, hands which only days before baked bread, tapped out financial reports, embraced our parents. What do we know of having our neighborhoods transformed into the front lines, of suddenly being responsible for the defense of home, of town, of nation, perhaps even of democracy itself. The UN reports that there have been at least 20,000 civilian casualties in Ukraine since the Russians invaded. But the UN also believes that the true number is considerably higher. The scale of destruction is staggering, with some towns nearly entirely eliminated by Russian aggression. And more than 8 million Ukrainians have sought refuge outside of the country, and nearly as many are internally displaced within Ukraine. Russian troops have suffered casualties as well, approaching 200,000. And according to the New York Times, on the Ukrainian side, at least 100,000 troops have been killed or wounded in action. This has been the worst conflict in Europe since the end of World War II. But one year later, still, Ukraine stands. Still, Ukraine resists. Still, Ukraine fights. And still, Ukraine asserts with unwavering certainty that it will prevail. And as we work to understand more fully what this year has been like in the midst of this conflict, we talked with two of the frontline journalists who've been bringing us dispatches throughout this year. My name is Christopher Miller. I'm the Financial Times correspondent in Ukraine and the author of the forthcoming book, The War Came to Us. My name is Anton Troyanovsky. I'm the Moscow Bureau Chief of the New York Times. Chris, I want to just start with you. Obviously, many of us are reflecting on the past year. Can you walk us through sort of some of the phases of the past 12 months in terms of the war? Yeah, you know, I think 
a, a year ago from right now, there was a lot of uncertainty about what exactly would happen. And I think you and your listeners will recall that the the United States and I think British intelligence and, and, and many people in the West were saying very loudly and clearly that Russia is going to invade Ukraine. And President Volodymyr Zelensky here in Kiev and a lot of Ukrainians really didn't believe that it would happen. You know, a lot of people here in Ukraine were saying, we, we think that Russia is likely to turn up the dial in the war in the east of Ukraine. But they didn't see the same intelligence or, or didn't read it the same way that the West was reading it. And so come February 24th, the day of Russia's invasion, President Zelensky and a lot of Ukrainians were caught off guard. And in fact, the president and, and all of his team were sleeping when the first Russian missiles hit the country and rocked the capital and startled everyone awake. And that launched what was the first phase of the war, this Russian blitzkrieg and attempt to capture the capital, which was an absolutely terrifying moment. I remember it very clearly. I actually happened to be in eastern Ukraine at the moment that the first missile struck the country because I too was expecting the focus to be there, but something big to happen. And I rushed back to Kiev and found this city very much on a war footing. There were checkpoints erected. There were volunteers running in the streets with guns. The ammunition depots had, had thrown open their doors and were handing rifles out to anybody that was willing to go and fight the invaders. And the military was mobilized and heading to meet Russian troops that were advancing from several different points, from Belarus in the north, from Russia in the north and the east, and also up from Crimea in the south. And it was just this really scary, really this moment of great uncertainty where a lot of people felt as though there was a, a chance that, that Kiev could fall in the first hours or days, as President Vladimir Putin had, uh, had predicted and hoped. But that, that moment passed, I think, a couple weeks later when it became clear that the Ukrainian resistance was going to be really, really strong and that the Ukrainians had mobilized so quickly and efficiently and the Russians had planned so poorly that this was no longer going to be the blitzkrieg that Russia had planned, but rather this protracted fight. And for the Ukrainians, a fight that was nothing less than, than one of, of survival and existence. So, so Chris, you talk about that um, belief that the focus would be um, on East Ukraine. Can you tell us what's happening in East Ukraine right now? Yeah. So after that first phase of the war, it became clear that the Russians were not going to get what they wanted in, in, in the capitulation of, of, of Kiev and President Zelensky. And what happened was they really refocused their military efforts and this quote unquote special military operation in eastern Ukraine, in the Donbass, which is where Russian troops and Ukrainian forces had been fighting for the past eight years. And, and we had seen for at least the last six and a half, this sort of simmering, grinding war of attrition. Now, from last summer on, we've seen Russian troops seize several cities and then slow to a halt. You know, they've not had great success in the east, with the exception of a couple of early victories last summer. And the Ukrainians actually have managed to push them out. And there were these two uh, counteroffensives in the autumn that pushed Russian forces out from the south and further into the east. And in response to that and those failures on the ground, we saw starting last October and November, Russia really ramp up its aerial assaults uh, across Ukraine. So not only in the east, but these missile attacks and drone attacks being carried out here in the capital in Kiev, 
uh, as far west as Lviv, certainly in the south, and then also providing those attacks as as cover for the ground forces in the east. And that brings us to this phase right now. We're, we're seeing as we approach the one-year anniversary of this, Russian forces really concentrate their efforts in eastern Ukraine, this area known as the Donbass, where they're trying to take all of the Donetsk and Lugansk provinces that Vladimir Putin declared as Russian territory last September. Anton, I want to come to you and sort of cover some of that same territory, but rather than from the perspective of what's happening at a military level, can you help us to understand what's happening to Russia as a country? Like, how has this affected their understanding, you know, presumably, while many both in Ukraine and in much of the rest of the world were shocked, Russia was clear about its intentions, but also must have expected a very different outcome. Indeed. I mean, actually, very much as Chris described the Ukrainian shock when the war began, people in Russia also almost uniformly did not believe the Western warnings that Putin was preparing to invade. You know, the idea that Putin could launch a full-fledged invasion of his neighbor would seem to violate, in people's thinking back then, would violate his kind of unspoken contract with the Russian people, which was, I let you do your thing as long as you don't interfere in in politics. And then suddenly, when the invasion happened, Putin's politics were driven home kind of for everyone in the country. Now, after that initial shock of the invasion, the next thing that happened was life actually didn't change all that much for most Russians. You know, there were, of course, those incredible sanctions that were put in place by the US and Europe, but they didn't manage to collapse the Russian economy. Most Russian standard, standard of living did not drastically deteriorate. So for the first six, seven months of the war, it actually remained a kind of a far off thing for most Russians, something that most Russians could ignore. And then that changed again in September, October, when Putin declared his draft and 300,000 civilians, men, were were mobilized and forced uh, to join the military. Talk to us a bit about the Kremlin messaging and, and Putin's presentation of this to the Russian people. Well, it was sort of a message that changed over time. But the basic one is that Ukraine is run by the Nazis, installed by the United States, and that if we were to not go to war now, then they would attack us in the near future. So it was kind of a preemptive invasion, the way that he characterized it. He also then increasingly started saying that we are not starting the war, we are ending it. His claim is that it's actually the West that started the war in Ukraine back in 2014, which uh, obviously is not true. It was Russia that that fomented the conflict in 2014. But, But it's this very much upside down universe in Russian propaganda. And one other thing that we've learned over the last year is that Russian television propaganda is extremely effective inside Mm. Russia. The Kremlin controls all of the television stations. Television remains the most important medium for how people get their information in Russia. And, uh, you know, you have hours a day of news, of, of, of talk shows, piping that message 
into Russian living rooms, that the West is the enemy, the West wants to destroy us, and our quote-unquote special military operation in Ukraine is about defending our country and our future from the West that wants to destroy us. Chris, on the other side of this border, talk to me about what life is like in Ukraine for Ukrainians right now. In, in stark contrast to the life in Russia that, that Anton described, where things didn't change a whole lot for most Russians, everything changed for Ukrainians. There are millions of Ukrainians that have been displaced by, by Russia's invasion. Many of them fled very early on in the invasion in the first days or weeks. There were log jams on the highways as people fled to the west of the country, seeking safety in cities like Lviv or even further in Poland or Hungary or, or beyond um, in Germany or, the, or, or London or even the United States. Then there are thousands of people, maybe tens of thousands. We, we, don't, we don't know the exact uh, number of people killed and wounded, but you know, the estimates are grim. I, I think it combined, it's, it's tens of thousands of, of civilians killed. It's certainly tens of thousands of soldiers killed. And each one of those soldiers in, in Ukraine are people who are not only maybe uh, those who were already in the military, but those who took up arms after the invasion, their grandfathers, their fathers, their brothers, their sons. So there's no family in Ukraine that has not been affected in some tragic way by this invasion. People have lost their livelihoods. They've lost their homes. Entire cities have been flattened by Russian missiles. You know, there are several other cities uh, where... Um, not only have they have they faced destruction, but they've also faced down these Russian soldiers in, in places like Bucha or Irpin or these other places around the northwestern Kiev region um, that have now become synonymous with the sort of terror that that Russian forces have unleashed upon Ukrainians. You know, there's the word the word genocide is is thrown around a lot here. And, you know, I think that's certainly a, a word that carries a lot of weight but it is one that is used increasingly so by Ukrainians as they discover just the not only the horrific atrocities that have been carried out against them by the Russians, but the scale in which they're being carried out by, by the Russian soldiers. Anton, I want to be able to make a bit of this distinction between the Russian people and the Russian government and military to the extent that it's it's fair to make that distinction. Can you help us to understand what these realities, even the language of genocide, means for hundreds of thousands of Russians who've left the country and, and for Russians who were already living across the world? So tens of thousands of Russians have been detained or arrested since the start of the war uh, for protesting against it or otherwise speaking out against it, saying something in public uh, against the war, uh, something that, for instance, highlights Russian war crimes in Bucha, outside Kiev, can get you imprisoned for 15 years. And there are numerous Russian public figures who have, who are now in prison, uh, for speaking out just about those uh, issues that 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 Chris raised. So it's uh, one of the major changes in Russia is that it, over the last year is that it's become an even more repressive society. It's basically, you know, you see how worried the government is about any kind of anti-war sentiment spreading by just how draconian these punishments are. And um, the fact is that from all we can tell, uh, Putin doesn't have 
you know, Putin's hold on power domestically within the ruling elite, if anything, has only been strengthened in the course of the last year. So um, we have a situation where domestically where Putin is dominant, his hold on power is firm, and uh, the, the state is able to silence just about any anti-war speech. That leads to a situation where a lot of people, especially those who don't have the means to leave, you know, try to find some way to um, justify what their country is doing in their name, which is, I think, one reason why you see uh, in the polls being conducted in Russia now, such as they are, showing that most Russians uh, say they they support the war. At the same time, as you said, hundreds of thousands of Russians have left the country in, in the last year. There was one major wave of, of emigration in um, uh, late February and, and March, sort of after the initial invasion where uh, people just like realized they didn't want to live in the kind of country anymore that that uh, would would carry out this kind of war. Um, and then there was another wave in the fall uh, when men especially were fleeing uh, the draft and ended up across uh, Central Asia, across Europe and um, uh, even in in Latin America and and the US. So um, for those Russians, that question that you raised is, mm-hmm. is, of course, incredibly hard. Incredibly hard. You know, they, they, and it's something that's being discussed every day in the myriad Russian YouTube channels that have sprung up that that are trying to to kind of tackle what can Russians who are against the war do in this situation? How can you influence the government if you are, let's say, a Russian journalist outside the country? How can you um, get the truth to people who are still inside the country. Um, YouTube, which I just mentioned, actually plays a really big role because uh, YouTube is not banned inside Russia. It's still freely accessible. So that's probably the main way that uh, Russians inside the country are able to get alternative information about, about the war. So it's, it's a very, it's a very hard question. Very hard. Chris, I want to give you the final word on this one. We're at the one-year mark, and this looks like it's going to be protracted. Uh, What are the primary needs in Ukraine right now, and what is sort of your sense of what the next three, six, 12 months might look like? Well, militarily, Ukraine is in pretty desperate need of ammunition. It's expending thousands of artillery shells and probably tens of thousands, if not hundreds of thousands of, of bullets every single day. Um, but it's these artillery shells that it that it really needs so that it can continue to defend itself. And not only that, but uh, eventually, uh, possibly this spring, launch a counteroffensive to try to retake territory. U- Ukraine also wants more air defense systems if it can get fighter jets, it would like them as well. But really, air defense systems, the ammunition for it, and artillery. Militarily, this is this is what Ukraine needs. Um, there is a lot of need uh, also for humanitarian assistance. A lot of humanitarian assist- humanitarian assistance has been given, but but it's not not all of it seems to be making it to the places where it's really needed. But also, a lot of people have had their homes destroyed, like I mentioned earlier, and so. You know, there are people living in temporary situations, shacking up with friends or family or, or strangers. 
or trying to rebuild, but without the means to do so. And so, uh, you know, the, the reconstruction of some places that were under occupation for several months is an ongoing issue. The, the way that the war is currently, yes, there's, there's no end in sight. Both sides, Russia and Ukraine, don't see a space for negotiations at the moment. For Ukraine, negotiating anything right now is untenable. Zelensky certainly cannot sit down with Putin, even if he wanted to, and negotiate some kind of settlement that would see uh, the areas that are currently under Russian occupation stay under Russian occupation. Uh, You know, all of Ukrainians right now really are behind the president and his leadership, and uh, they want Ukraine to continue to try to expel Russian uh, occupiers from these territories in the south and the east. Uh, I think, you know, Anton can speak probably better on, on the Russian side, but I don't think I'm wrong in saying that the Russians don't want to sit down right now and negotiate either. They really want to see the rest of the east, uh, that being Donetsk and Lugansk provinces, uh, captured. These are the areas that uh, Putin claimed to annex last last autumn. Uh, and, and that goes also for Zaporizhia and Kherson Oblast in the south. These are only partially occupied by Russia. And and I believe that Russian forces want to continue trying to, to push into all four of these areas and to fully occupy them before they uh, attempt to, to uh, get President Zelensky at the negotiating table. But even at that point, knowing the Ukrainians like I do, speaking with them, speaking with uh, President Zelensky in his office, I, I don't see the Ukrainians under any circumstances, whether it's uh, being short on ammunition or having the momentum against them, uh, stopping their fight. They see this as a, a, an, an existential fight, and, and it is a fight for their survival and the survival of Ukraine. I think they'll, they'll continue to fight as long as it takes. Christopher Miller is a Ukraine correspondent for the Financial Times and author of the forthcoming book, The War Came to Us. And Anton Troyanovsky is the Moscow bureau chief for the New York Times. Chris, Anton, thank you both for being here. Thank Thank you for having us. Okay, we're going to take a break here. But when we get back, we'll be checking in with some of the Ukrainians that we've talked to throughout this past year, including a woman whose grandmother was rescued from the Russian siege of Mariupol. About 600,000 people go missing every year in the U.S., prompting family members to become amateur detectives. On the trail of one missing person is journalist Tanya Mosley. Why do you think you hesitated when we first met in telling me the full details about your mother's disappearance? It's heartbreaking. I didn't want to break your heart. I'm Kai Wright. Tanya Mosley joins me next time on Notes from America. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. As we approach the one-year mark of Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we're checking back in with some of the Ukrainians that we've talked to as they reflect on this past year. My name is Elena Shevchenko, and I'm a chairperson of uh, Inside Public Organization, which is based in Kiev and uh, support LGBTQI communities and also women from vulnerable groups uh, now during the war. We spoke with Elena last April. She was in Kiev at the start of the Russian invasion. She stayed for 14 days, partially sheltering in a basement, and then decided to move the Kiev-based part of her organization to the western city of Lviv. Now, they went back to Kiev in June, 
and have had hubs all around the country. Throughout the war, the organization has continued advocacy work around LGBTQ issues. And they've also helped tens of thousands of people who were fleeing the country or who were internally displaced by offering legal consultations, distributing humanitarian aid, and finding temporary shelter. The war has changed everything about day-to-day -day life in Ukraine. But winter was especially hard. Nobody among us or other people were uh, pretty prepared to the winter or winterization, how it's called on the different levels. Honestly, that was a nightmare, mostly because, like, you know, in the summer and also during the spring, there were many attacks with bombing, um, but the target was uh, quite, you know, different, like buildings, uh, military bases, and also people's buildings, houses. And then uh, they changed this tactic, and the main goal was the energetic object. So almost all country were in the black, uh, you know, conditions, but it's not only uh, about the light. That's the whole electricity system, which means like you don't have heating, don't have any possibilities to cook something. It is, it is very cold, like it's freezing even uh, inside your apartment. And you don't know when there will be uh, electricity in your house. So that's why, of course, we try to support uh, our community members and um, open another program trying to buy all possible solutions like generators, small heating system, systems, uh, gas heatings, small portable gas supplies uh, to cook something at least, you know, somewhere if you have this access to gas balloons, we also send it to people. And mostly uh, warm blankets also, uh, lighters, everything which give people, you know, some, some kind of light or heating. For many Ukrainians, they'd hoped the war would be over by now. But however long that takes, Olena and others are preparing to rebuild. Now it seems to us like nobody is expecting that it will be such a previous life for us. So we are trying to be mm, well prepared for another year of the war. Or if it will be finished, uh, we understand the consequences. And... Um, also, we understand that it will be much more difficulties, let's say. We don't expect it will be better, especially in terms of the situation of people in Ukraine. Uh, because it's not just like the war, bombing, people uh, lost everything, houses, relatives, but it's also about very deep social and economical crisis, which affects mostly the vulnerable communities. And despite these many difficulties there are some things that still give Olena hope. It's still people. Like, looking back to the whole my activist life, I can't remember the period uh, which showed me so many people who came together yeah, to do some good things to help others, uh, even taking into account that they also suffered. So this solidarity and mutual support, I think that's the main thing. To believe in uh, humanity still, which still exists in our society. We also checked back in with 
Hi, my name is Maria Sirichenko. I'm currently in Ukraine, in Kiev region. Um, actually, since uh, the war started, I changed many places uh, where I were. Uh, but yeah, currently I'm located in Kiev. We last spoke with Maria at the beginning of March, just a couple of weeks after the Russian invasion. She was in Kiev when the city was attacked, and she left two days later, also to the safety of Lviv. Nearly a year later, she's back in Kiev. Yeah, it's funny because uh, recently I calculated how many places I've changed since the beginning of the war, and I counted more than 10 places. Maria is from Mariupol, and, and you may remember this city's name because it was an early target of Russian attacks. The city was under siege for more than 80 days, and it's estimated that thousands of civilians were killed in the attacks. But exact numbers have been very difficult to verify. The city is currently under Russian control. When we last spoke to Maria, she hadn't been in contact with her grandmother in Mariupol for 10 days. But the family found a way to get her grandmother out. So basically, she was for almost three weeks in Mariupol without any heat, electricity, water, under constant uh, shelling uh, by Russians. And uh, we found a way, you know, we paid some money, we found a way to rescue her. And we also had some uh, really good people that helped us with finding her and uh, taking her to the safe place. Uh, but yes, it was probably one of the most difficult uh, days uh, for our whole family. Uh, thanks God, again, she is safe. And uh, right now she is also in the Kyiv region. But of course, these hard weeks were extremely difficult for her and uh, her health condition also worsened uh, due to that uh, stress and due to that uh, you know, shelling that she experienced in Mariupol. But I'm super glad that she's alive and uh, we, we can, you know, see each other again. Still, Maria has experienced losses during this war. I have some people whom I know who died, unfortunately, in the war. My former colleagues, my relatives were in capture in spring when uh, people were defending Mariupol, they were in Azovstal, so I had some of my relatives there, and then they were in prison for, you know, six months. And everything about day-to-day -day life has changed for Maria. It allowed us to understand the biggest value that we have. It's our life, it's our freedom, it's uh, our country. And uh, the life changed from different perspectives, from day to day, for example, because since October, we started experiencing power outages, blackouts, issues with electricity, you know, with heating, with water. So we needed to get used to it. But uh, also it's hard to understand that you can't have basic access to the things that you used to have all the time, all your life. And the life also changed from a, a philosophical perspective, again, because all my family is scattered all around the world right now. My hometown is occupied by Russians since April, and I don't have my home, like my 
my parents' house where I could, you know, go anytime. So it's also uh, hard from, you know, mental perspective to understand that you don't have something you used to have for your whole life. And suddenly Russians, they just took it away from you. And uh, you need to fight for your freedom. You need to fight for your life. It's hard to reflect on the, you know, the terrible things that we experience because psychologically my mind just tries to block all the horrors that we've been through. Uh, but I try to focus on things that we can influence and I don't know when the victory will come. I don't know when uh, we will win uh, specifically, but I can control uh, my actions. So I try to put all my energy into the day-to-day, -day, into work, into helping, volunteering, donating. And I think if I can share anything, you know, with people around the globe, I would say that this is something that everyone can do. Every little action counts. Every small step that we are taking together towards defending our country and towards um, you know just defending the basic human rights defending the freedom of people will move this goal closer to us will move this uh, victory closer to us and uh, i personally think that uh, keeping you know positive mind even despite all the death that we face every day. It's super important. Thank you to Maria and Olena for sharing with us. Slava Ukraini! Slava Ukraini! As we approach the one-year mark since Russia's invasion of Ukraine, we've heard from people living through the conflict. And we also wanted to hear from you. Many of you expressed sympathy for the Ukrainian people. Byron L. Williams, calling from Washington, D.C. One of the ways that I am reflecting on this anniversary is I have met several Ukrainians who have talked about wanting to go home or seeing how hard it is being in the United States while watching their home being in a war. And that's really hard to think about of, you know, your home, your, your friends and family going through this and you not being able to do what you want or, you know, just experiencing this in a way that sometimes feels helpless and hopeless. This is Mary from Philadelphia. February 24th has a special meaning for me. It was the birthday of my late daughter who passed away seven years ago at age 46. When Russia invaded Ukraine on her birthday. I couldn't help but think one tragedy on top of another tragedy. Uh, my heart goes out to all the people in Ukraine the same way my heart goes out to my daughter. And I just hope for a, a fast and humane end to this awful war that they're experiencing. The Russian-Ukrainian thing is so awful. We have people who are totally innocent and all they want to do is live their lives and another country is killing them over and over and over again. I just wish that the entire world would get together and 
say, hey, knock it off. Some of you talked with us about wanting to see more domestic and international support for Ukraine. Larry, I'm calling from Lambertville, New Jersey. It's more important than ever. We really have to pull this together, get a, get all the right resources to the Ukrainians. No time to slack off on this thing now. This is Ken Marish calling from Ocala, Florida. What is crystal clear is the impotence of the world community at stopping a lone madman and his war of choice. That Putin continues every day to rain destruction, death, and the ruination of so many Ukrainian lives is a crime against humanity. This war must stop. Putin must be brought to justice. Hi, this is Deborah from Colorado. I feel like every other country in the world should be helping Ukraine push Russia back, but I understand that it's a delicate balance when you're dealing with an opponent as unbalanced as Putin seems to be. For many, there are feelings of helplessness and concerns that things could still get worse. My name is Catherine Schmidt from Ridgewood, New Jersey. Each day when I watch or read about or hear about the war, I feel like I am a voyeur observing the story as it unfolds. It's like a bad dream, and I wonder how this can go on. It's especially painful knowing that there is so much more we can be doing militarily, but that politically we cannot do much more than what we are doing. I worry that years from now, decades from now, we might be viewed as bystanders, similar to how many were viewed as they stood by and watched the Holocaust. And of course, there are those expressions of hope. My name is Paul McCarthy from Massachusetts. The bravery of the Ukrainian people sustains my hope for the future. As always, we are so grateful for all of you for sharing with us. Call us at 877-869-8253. 